thank all of you for ministering through music today. Bud, you've once again illustrated the truth that the acorn don't fall far from the tree. That is true. And uh, thank you. You have a gift. I have come, and, and Joseph is here usually when I come to worship, and he does so good. But you have a gift too, brother. Thank you. And Gigi, I don't know if you're still in here or not, but I've got a sore throat. <laughs> After you did what you did, that was wonderful. And then Wayne comes up here and gets real low. I, I don't have that kind of range now. I don't. Uh, I've known Kathy all her life, just about. Uh, from the beginning, she's been one of my favorites. She's exemplary. She always has been. Uh, I met Wayne when the two of them began dating. And uh, they blessed me more than I could ever communicate to you. I've asked myself, uh, what, what it is that has caused me to be drawn to them like a magnet all these years. And I think I figured it out, at least in part, when I read something that the great Italian tenor, uh, Pavarotti, said. This is what he said. He, he said, some singers want the audience to love them. I love the audience. Most pastors desire their congregation to love them. Wayne and Kathy love the congregation. That's, that's their winning combo, I think. And I'm honored, brother, to preach in this pulpit of which you are a steward. And a good steward you are. Bless you and thank you. It takes a lot of trust for a pastor to invite somebody to come and preach. So I'm grateful that you trust me. Thank you. It's my understanding that there are 13.2 million Southern Baptists. That's a lot of folks. On any given Sunday like today, 3.8 million Southern Baptists worship in person in a church. Kind of causes you to wonder where the other 10 million Southern Baptists are today. Um, every church, every Baptist church has a church role. And uh, we usually have a fraction of the members who worship on a given Sunday. Uh, I don't know how many uh, are worshiping over at Powder Springs today, where I was privileged to serve for so long. Uh, but they have 3,500, right at 3,500 members, if I recall correctly. 
I guarantee you there's not 3,500 people there today. I don't want to be mean. I'm not a mean person, and, and I don't want to be unkind. But I wonder if those names that are written on the rolls of all these Southern Baptist churches, I wonder if their names are also written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, I don't want to be mean. But because of this, Jesus told a parable. The parable is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. And, and I want us to look at that today. I'm going to read it to you, beginning at verse 9. And then I just want to talk about the two main characters in the parable. Luke 18, verse 9, he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now let me stop right there and just ask, any of you, don't raise your hands now, any of you feel righteous today? I mean, good? Feel like a good person? And, and maybe sometimes treat others less than they deserve? That's who he's going to talk about today. So listen to the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen to what Jesus said. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, now that means us too, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So first, I want us to notice this character who's identified as the Pharisee. Jesus spends two-thirds of his time here telling this parable, describing this man called a Pharisee. We would call him today an outstanding churchman. He, he, he attended synagogue 
every Saturday, every Sabbath day. He gave, he gave 10% of his income faithfully without fail to support his church, his synagogue. He was a man of practical righteousness. He was faithful to his wife. He was loyal to his friends. Scrupulously honest in his business dealings with others. He's, he's the kind of man with whom you would want to do business because he is honest. His, his word was his bond. Loaning him money was like putting it in the bank. You could count on him to pay it back. He was a man of personal religious devotion. He read his Bible, and not only did he read it, he studied his Bible. He believed the Bible. He tried to live the Bible. He prayed five times a day, five specific times each day he went to God in prayer. As best he knew, he was living a godly life because he wanted to be a godly man. Let's resist the temptation to look down our noses self-righteously at the Pharisee. Because by almost any standard that we would make today, he was a good man. Now if you miss that point that the Pharisee lived a good, pure life, you're going to miss the meaning of the parable. He was a good man. As a man, as a fact, matter of fact, he was he was as good a man as you could find in the religious world of his day. We're too quick. We're too superficial in our condemnation of this Pharisee. We condemn him. And we do it for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we take delight in, in judging him. We, we, we enjoy sometimes declaring that Jesus condemned the religious Pharisee and praised the sinful Republican. I didn't say that. <laughs> sinful publican, okay? Because we don't measure up. We do not measure up to the righteousness of the Pharisee. I mean, after all, how many of you spend five specific times every day when you stop what you're doing to pray to God? How many of you spend protracted periods of time each day reading God's Word and not just reading it, but studying God's Word? Study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Paul tells us. Though Timothy tells us. How many of us do that? How many of us attend church every Sunday? How many of us give always 10% of our income? 
How many of us can claim that our word is always our bond? How many of us can claim absolute fidelity to all of our friends, to all of our fellow Christians, and never say a word of condemnation about them? Sometimes we feel qualified to give this Pharisee a hard time because we don't measure up. Some people say, well, you know, Mike, you need to understand that, you know, I, I, I believe that being religious is, is okay. Going to church, that, if that's what people want to do, that's okay. And they'll say to me, remember the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees. In other words, Mike, you better look out, buddy. But we need to remember Jesus, too. I want you to understand that this Pharisee, from every standard that we would say, he's the kind of guy that would be in church today and you would enjoy going to eat with him because he might just buy your lunch. That's the kind of guy he was. He wanted you to know. And he, and, and he felt like that was part of his... His, his ministry to help others. Let's be careful. You've got to understand this was a good, according to our standard, this was a good man. But we've also got to look at another character in this, in this parable, and that's the, uh, the publican, the tax collector. Uh, Jesus doesn't spend much time describing him. Uh, there's no need to do that because everybody knew what kind of man he was. He was a tax collector. When the word publican was used, people knew what kind of guy that he was. Now, if you kind of try to relate this tax collector in Jesus' parable to the uh, tax commissioner of Paulding County, that, no, no, that's not the same. Uh, in our tax system today, we have uh, checks and balances in place. We have uh, people that watch very carefully, you know, that things are done right. Uh, in first century Palestine, uh, a tax collector was really nothing more than a, a legalized extortionist. He extorted money out of his fellow Jews to get rich. You see, Rome was a, was a foreign power who had conquered Palestine, and the Jews were not citizens of Rome. They were subjects of Caesar. 
Israel was not a state within a nation, but it was a colony of the Roman Empire. Rome intended to squeeze out of every Jew every dime they could. So what they did was they sold the office of tax collector to the highest bidder. For example, this position in our dollars, let's just say it'd be $100,000. What that tax collector was responsible for was to turn in to the Roman government $100,000 at the end of that year. But anything he could collect over that $100,000 went in his own pocket. That's what we have here. And most publicans, most tax collectors in this day were rich, wealthy. This guy was the Benedict Arnold of his day. He was a traitor to Israel. He was a pawn of Caesar. That's what we're looking at here. No wonder the Jewish people despised him. And despise him they did. Verse 13, Jesus says the the tax collector stood afar off. (laughs) There was good reason for that. If he had followed the Pharisee into the court of Israel to stand before the sanctuary, he would have been arrested. For by law and by custom, publicans were barred from going beyond the court of the Gentiles. They were considered too sinful to enter the temple proper. They could not testify at a trial. They were too dishonest. They were such notorious liars. They could not be believed even if they were sworn to tell the truth. They wouldn't let them testify. The New Testament, if you'll remember, consistently places publicans and prostitutes together. Jesus was criticized for his association with who? Publicans and harlots. It's almost as if they were one group. They belonged in the minds of the people to the same class of people. In other words, they had completely sold out to sin. The prostitute sold her body. The publican sold his conscience. Now, I have tried to describe to you this morning the depravity of this publican. But I fear I've failed. Just as we're apt to condemn the Pharisee for his righteousness, we're out to praise the publican for his sin. We do that, you know. 
I'm ashamed to say. Sin, wickedness, evil, holds a strange fascination for us. We've turned Billy the Kid and Jesse James and Al Capone, Bonnie Parker and other criminals into folk heroes. Sometimes our kids listening to us almost reverence that group of punks and hoodlums and gangsters and outlaws. Don't make that mistake with this publican. Don't waste your sympathies on him. He was a crooked politician who had grown rich by his exploitation of the poor. He's just not a good man. If the Pharisee was a good man, this guy is not a good man. Yet, this man, this publican, will one day walk through the pearly gates of heaven and be welcomed by St. Peter. But the one we would consider good, the Pharisee, will never see the kingdom of heaven according to Jesus. Now, unless you see that paradox, this contrast, this what we would consider almost a contradiction, then you don't understand the parable that Jesus told. Here's a good man condemned and an evil man rewarded. Now, for just a moment, think of the best person you know. I mean, the best person you know. Let's just go this far. The best person you've ever known. Ever known. You might guess I'm thinking of my mama. Now I want you to think of the worst person. The most evil person you've ever known or heard about in your life. The most low down, low morals, least religious. Now do you have those two people in mind? Now imagine the best person you know being condemned to hell and at the same time the worst person you know or have ever heard of ushered into heaven. Folks, that's the parable. That is the parable. So listen to me. No man, no woman is good enough to merit heaven. Now the Bible does not teach that righteousness is worthless. It teaches that righteousness is not enough. What's the most common response one gets when they're asked if they're a Christian? Myra and I were coming back from Panama City the other day and we were listening to a, a preacher, a minister, and he said exactly what I have experienced in my life. When you ask somebody if they're a Christian, you know what they say? I'm trying to be. 
I'm living the best I know how. So, so was the Pharisee. He was doing the best he could. He did the best he knew how. Doing all the stuff. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what Jesus said? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, can you imagine the shock and the horror of Jesus' congregation when he spoke this parable? Exceed their righteousness? They don't do nothing but pray and read the Bible almost. Well, Lord, there's no way that I can exceed their righteousness. There may be somebody in here that can stand up and say, I'm just as good as they were. I'm sorry, but I doubt it. I mean, they... They followed every jot and tittle of the law. You know what they did? They didn't didn't settle with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. They They didn't stop there. They did what many scholars call, they built a fence around them. Not only are you to keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy, but this is how many steps you can take on the Sabbath day. And if you've gone too many, you've got to stop right where you are and wait till Sunday. I don't know how many of you all have been to the Holy Land, but they, they have a, what they call a Shabbat elevator. Shabbat elevator. It's an elevator that you get on during the Sabbath so you won't have to touch the number, the button, to stop at your floor. It's going to stop at every one of them. I mean, they got it down to an art. This is how you're religious. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And Jesus says, unless my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee, I won't enter into heaven. Let's look at, let's look at the prayers of these two guys. I read it a while ago, but let's, let's go back over it a minute. The Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers. And thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then he went over all the stuff that he'd done. I do this, I do this, I do What arrogance, what pride. But listen to the prayer of the publican. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I hope that you will remember with me that to repent 
is not restricted to those of the world. You can come to church every Sunday and follow the rules, but you still have to repent of your sin. Turn. That's what repent means. Turn. My wife, Myra, is here. She loves me, but she loves the book of Romans more. Paul's letter to those early Roman Christians. I believe that Romans is an excellent commentary on the parable that we have looked at today. The theme of Romans is found in the first chapter of the book. I think we're going to uh, put up a, a verse or two of Romans 1. Where Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you look at the first chapter you're going to, of Romans, you're going to be reminded that um, you don't have any excuse. God has revealed himself to you. Even if you live in one of those countries way away who have never heard the gospel, listen, God has revealed himself to them through nature, through his wonderful works. So, in the first chapter of Romans, it's going to say, you ain't got any excuse. You can't make much excuse. Chapter 2 reminds us that we better not judge each other. How many of you ever judge anybody else? Do you? Well, I have to watch myself. But Romans 2 tells us you better not do that. And what Paul was doing was just giving comment to what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount. Because however you judge another person is how you will be judged. When I think about that, that straightens me out. <clears throat> I don't want to be judged by that criteria because I don't know everything. See, I don't know why you do what you do why you don't do what you don't do. I'm in no position to judge a one of you. And I'm not in a position to judge those that I do know very, very well because I don't know everything. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, he says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, every one of us. He even says it this way, there's none righteous, no, not one.
Chapter 4, 5, and 9, he's talking to the Jews. He even talks about how he longs for them to be saved. Chapter 6, he talks about baptism. He explains, he said, we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. Just like Christ was buried. If you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, you need to be baptized. And you need to be baptized on the right side of salvation. When you profess your faith in Christ, when you accept Him into your heart, then you go into those waters of baptism. And you are buried and raised to walk in a newness of life. Chapter 7 talks about, well, the good that I want to do, I don't do it. And the bad that I don't want to do, I do it. Anybody else ever have that problem? Paul talks about that. Many of you have read Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That is based on Romans 7. That's what motivated Robert Louis Stevenson to write that novel. And if you want to read it, it's very short, less than 100 pages. Romans 8. He says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, what this is all about is a big word. Wayne's probably taught it to you. Soteriology. Aren't you glad you came today? Yeah. It's simply the doctrine of salvation. It's how you're saved. When you become a Christian, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet some of you this very morning picked up the rock and looked under it at something that you did 15 years ago and it's still there and it's haunting you. And God has said, there's no condemnation for you because of what Jesus did on the cross. You've been forgiven. Once and for all, forever. Praise His holy name. And then at the end of chapter 8, if that's not enough, He starts saying, now, okay, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Then He starts naming a bunch of stuff, tribulation, distress, persecution, whatever. No, no, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Do I hear a witness today? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Chapter 9 again about, about the Jewish people. Chapter 10. Listen to this. 
This is the doctrine of salvation. He says it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. He goes on, he talks about how in the world are they going to believe without a preacher and all of that. But, he's, but he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? Have you trusted Christ? Is he Lord of your life? Would you receive Him today? Would you publicly confess Him as Lord of your life in just a few minutes when we offer that invitation, that appeal for people to come to Jesus? That's what the Bible teaches. In other words, it's not by righteous works. What's it by? He tells us very plainly in Ephesians 2, for by, somebody help me, grace, are you saved through, and that not of yourselves, it is the, of God unto salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. You can't merit heaven. This Pharisee, as good as he was, Jesus pointed out he could not merit heaven. He had to come by way of the cross. And the way you do that is you confess your sin and all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And yet, my in it Romans 5 where he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know him, if you've never received him, no matter how good you live, and no matter how many times you decide, I'm going to do better, it won't merit you heaven. It's God's gift to you in Christ. I know my time's up, but I, but I want to just share one story. I, I was listening to a guy named R.G. Lee preach. Anybody here remember that name, R.G. Lee? Some of you do, yeah. Most of us are white-headed, but we, we remember him. He was a pastor of Bellevue Church years ago. Now, there have been a bunch of preachers since, Pollard and Adrian Rogers, and what did you tell me this morning? Steve Gaines is there now. Wonderful congregation, wonderful. R.G. Lee was a great preacher. He preached a sermon called Payday Someday. And, uh, and it was one of the most famous sermons, I guess, ever, ever preached. But anyway, one day he told this story at a convention that I was at. He said that he saw his little girl in there cross-legged in her room, and he noticed that she was reading something that had her back uh, to him, and he uh, kind of came up to her and was going to tickle her ribs and say, boop. 
scared just a little bit, you know, not bad. But he, he was about to do that, and he looked, and he, and he heard her, and she was sniffing. He said, what, what are you reading? He, he, or he thought that, and he looked over, and she was reading John 19 about the crucifixion. And all of a sudden, she started saying, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. And she started to cry. I heard him tell that story, and I thought, why? Why am I not moved by that like his daughter was? Now, several of you are in ministry and on staff and, and all that. But let me give you a warning about something. You handle holy things. You're around holy things all the time, sacred things. And sometimes we can get so familiar with the holy that we lose the awe and the majesty. And I had to confess to, to God, I've been reading this all my life and I've heard about the death of Jesus on the cross. But God, help me to know what it cost you to save my soul. And forgive me for not recognizing the pain and the agony that it cost Jesus. You think of all the sins that you've ever seen and the consequences of them and the hurt and the disappointment and the pain and the heart of people you love. That's what Jesus bore on the cross. That's what he took upon himself. And the reason you can walk out of here today and not worry about whatever that was you did 15 years ago because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't think it came cheap. It cost him his life. And he bore our sins on the tree. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute and close your eyes. We're going to sing in just a minute and I'll be through. But today, if the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to you and you've been depending upon something good that you've done and hoping that the good outweighs the bad and maybe one day God will let you into heaven if that's not the way it happens. Would you pray right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. And I want you to be the Lord, the God of my life. Because I believe that you died for me and that you were raised for me from the dead. And that one day, I'll see you and we'll praise you forever together. Wayne's going to be here at the front. We're going to stand.
Let the Holy Spirit have his way with you as we stand to sing.